Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. And on today's show, we meet two world-class British actresses, both of whom have impressive stage credentials. Both were born in London, but one focused on making it big on TV in the UK, and the other packed her bags for LA and found success on one of the biggest sci-fi franchises on the planet. Vicky Michelle has appeared on many of the UK's most loved TV sitcoms and dramas, including The Likely Lads, Dixon of Doc Green, George and Mildred, Minder, and The Professionals. But it was her role as Yvette in Allo Allo that made her name. Marina Sirtis was born in Hackney of Greek parents and initially landed TV roles in the UK, again including Minder, plus Up the Elephant and Round the Castle, Raffles and Sherlock Holmes. But she gave it all up and was hired by Gene Roddenberry to play counsellor Deanna Troy on Star Trek The Next Generation. But first to Vicky Michelle. I started our chat by reminding her that her early ambitions were not acting, but she wanted to be a ballerina. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. I did. Gosh, you've done your research, Paul. <laughs> yes, I did want to be a ballet dancer. I did ballet from when I was three. I loved watching ballet, Rudolf Nureyev and Margot Fantaine. And it was just, I, I just used to look at them and think how beautiful they are. So yes, ballet was my first love. And what happened then? You obviously didn't become the ballerina. Well, no, I went to school and carried on with my ballet lesson. Then I had an accident. I fell off a bike and cut my wrist. And okay. so I had to give up ballet when I was 14. So I studied, took my GCEs at school. But my sister Annie, who's an actress as well, she was at my school, but she wasn't very good. So she left and went to Ada Foster Stage School. And so I stayed on, took my O-levels, took a secretarial course, being sort of I thought, well, if I need something to fall back on if I do anything else. I mean, sadly, that's what girls did in those days. Yeah, yeah, did yeah. a secretarial course or yeah, a commerce course. Shorthand typing, Pittman's, yeah. I can do it. Pittman's, yeah. <laughs> Touch typing, uh, which stands me in quite good stead now. Then when I've taken my exams and my father said, look, I've sent your sister to um, stage school, would you like to? And I said, well, Dad, I'm not sure I want to be a secretary. I'd love to go. And when you go to these stage schools, they send you out straight away for auditions. So I started getting auditions. You got auditioned straight away? Yeah, so you're so training. What did, what did you do at the audition? Because I mean, to get an audition like that so fast, you must have been really good. Well, I don't like to break no... I don't know. Yeah, I didn't know at the be. time. But I could read a script. And at okay. school, I did English Lit, and I used to read. And um, So what would you do for your audition at this age, at 14, Vicky? No, no, then I was 17. You're so 17. when I left school, so I'm 17. So okay. 14, I gave up school, then stayed on at school, took my O-levels, and now I'm left school, 17. So I'm 17. I'm in the students' part. So you're doing singing, dancing, and acting. And then you get a call, say, my first job, God, this is going to date me, is uh, Dixon of Doc Green. All right, so... Evening all. Evening all. And <laughs> so I did that. And what did you play? Because Dixon of Doc Green, for those who remember, was mainstream, Saturday night, BBC yeah. One. It was the anchor before the Generation game. Yes, and, and a police like the Bill. It was like the Bill took but, over. But more for, genteel. Much more genteel. And they all loved him, didn't they? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. George Dixon was... Yes, uh, he yeah, was loved by the nation. Part. What parts did you get? Well, I just... I, it was at a party scene. I had a few lines. So, you know, when you're starting out, you go for them, but you have to have a line, you know. So I read for the script, and then they give you the part. So basically, I was going to the BBC or ITV or wherever, and the audition is they give you a script, you read it. And I've always been good at reading scripts. And so I used to get parts and so that was that one and then I think I went on to work. You did the Likely Lads I think in the very early days of the Likely Lads. I did, I did the Likely Lads, that was great, I was working with um, 
This is Rodney Bewes and James, James Bolan. And what yes. were they like to work with? Oh, they were fun. I mean, that was a big show. I mean, you forget how big the Likely Lads were. No, that was huge. It was huge. It was huge. And my first job with them was, so it was for the television series. I had a, a, a northern accent. And so Can you do that? I was like, what was James? What's James? Um, here, Terry, can you give us some chips, please? I want to play on the roulette. <laughs> it was like that. Very convincing oh, yes, for was, <laughs> Just off the cuff. Terry. You know, but she was like, uh, so I was Terry's girlfriend in this one. And um, playing roulette, we were in a club. Um, so that was that one. But then I went on later to be in the film. Oh, right. Of the Likely Lads. Okay. And it's really funny because I've done sort of quite a lot of stuff. Um, but everyone, but everyone, because they show the film every Christmas and everyone says, saw you in the Likely Lads. <laughs> and it it's was, not a bad thing to be <laughs> no, remembered for. No, it's great. It's great. I was in a scene with the hitchhikers where they pick up a couple of hitchhikers, which is me and uh, Penny Irving, uh, who was in Are You Being Served? So uh, we played the hitchhikers and that, and, uh, and that, uh, that was great, except I'd had food poisoning the night before, and I was really ill. Not that you can see, but... You still went on. The show must go oh, on. Oh, darling, the, the show, show must, must go, go on. on, yes. My guest is Vicky Michelle on Private Lives. So we were talking about some of the parts you were getting. I want to just talk about Crackerjack for a moment, because oh, you did Crackerjack. And I did. there's a whole generation who remember that. And it's interesting, the other day I met mm. Les McEwen from the Bay City Rollers, and he was saying how Crackerjack actually was the reason they were successful, because there was a cancellation, and they got the slot to play on Crackerjack, and that was what started their career. So Crackerjack was huge, 5 to 5, Leslie Crowther, BBC One, Friday afternoon. Yeah, it was. It was just a brilliant show. Cabbages. Dropping the cabbages, wasn't it? And who was the woman in it? Um, I forget. I remember Peter Glaze. Peter, yes, I remember Peter Glaze. No, I know her really well. What did you do on Crackerjack? I can't remember. It was so long ago. I think I got cabbages. I did get cabbages. cabbages. I got cabbages, you know, and tried not to drop them. I think I did drop them in the end. It was great. And Crackerjack, it was just fun. Everyone watched Crackerjack. And Leslie Crowther was brilliant. What did he ever catchphrase did he have a catchphrase he did when he went on to the price right but i don't think he had a catchphrase on on crackerjack i mean the thing i was going to ask you about is did you get a crackerjack pencil oh my goodness maybe, Do you remember that i maybe i i must have done i must have got because that was his catchphrase <laughs> all the kids who took part in games got a crackerjack pencil that was, that was the prize that was the prize everyone wanted a crackerjack it was pencil. As, it was as cherished as a blue peter badge i must have it in the loft because i'm a terrible hoarder so i keep everything well do dig it out and do look you think it's it. worth anything i'm sure it's worth at least <laughs> 50 pence. Okay, fabulous, I'll find it. So you're doing all these TV shows. I mean, this must be pretty exciting. I mean, these are big shows, big brands, and you're doing acting on TV. This is pretty good stuff. And also, I did, uh, I was a year in the West End uh, with Dudley Moore in Play It Again, Sam. Ah. So that was uh, that was a real coup as now, well. Now, Dudley Moore, now he is an A-lister, total A-lister. He that is. must have been a real pleasure. It was, because he was just sort of bubbling. I mean, he's always, he, he, there was the Pete and Dud show, and um, he'd done that film with Bo Derek. And he, but he was just a lovely bloke, and he was so talented. It was played against Sam, so I think there was about seven girls in the, um, and Bill Kerr, who played the Humphrey Bogart part, who was brilliant. He used to walk around in see-through pink, pink knickers. As you do. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Backstage. Uh, Backstage, <laughs> That was goodness. my introduction to the West End. <laughs> and Dudley was lovely. And I think everyone in that cast was a little bit in love with Dudley because he was such a lovely person. And a great musician too. Oh my goodness, yes, so talented. Well, you know, there's seven women in the cast. And I think everyone was a bit in love with Dudley. And he was just a lovely person. Not only, um, you know, caring and kind and fun, uh, but so hugely talented. 
and great at acting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad it's good to hear that because he's mm. such a such a legend. So aside from that, we've also got on here Minder and the Professionals. Now that's very different. That's not really comedy, is it? No, no. Well, this was before I sort of really got into comedy. I think I did Minder and the Professionals, and uh, that was great work with Dennis Waterman and Mandy Perriman was with me in that, uh, which was about boxing. And we were sort of the girls that were in the ring. You know, they're supposed trying to ban them now, I think. You know, we were um, big fans of, of boxing. Did you get a line in that? Oh, yeah, of course. I never did anything unless you I You always lines. insisted on a line, did you? Well, we always had to, because it was a part thing, Okay. you see. Can't, otherwise, we would have been extras. Just extras, yeah, right. so, so you so always got a line. Always. We had quite a few lines in that, I think. And then The Professionals, I did with one where I played Bodie's girlfriend and another one which I did with John Junkin, which I was like sort of the gangster's girlfriend, which was, uh, that, that was a really good part. Podcast Radio. My guest is Vicky Michelle. This is Paul Robinson, Private Lives. So you're doing all these different shows. You're doing comedy, you're doing drama. At what point did you think, well, actually comedy is what I'd like to do? I actually wanted to do serious acting. And, um, you know, I did um, a, a few Softly Softlies as well. In fact, I think did three of those. This is Stratford Johns. Yes, yeah. A great, I mean, it was such a popular series. And you're only supposed to do one, but I actually ended up doing three because the first one I went for, uh, they, it was the part of a skinhead girl. So I read for it and the director said, you look completely wrong, but I love the way you read. Would you wear a wig? So yes, I did. So I wore a wig. And this is really weird because I just found out that my co-star in that was, um, he played the part of Henry and his name was Leon Vital. So I was watching um, a series on Stanley Kubrick and I was watching him and then Leon Vital comes on and he was Stanley Kubrick's right-hand man. So he'd got, he, liked, he was a really good actor and did acting, he acted, but then decided he wanted to work with him. And, and you just think, oh my God, I didn't know that. After all these years, you know, he's ended up working with a, an amazing uh, person. But it's, you, you often think, what happened to the, that person that I work with? Where are they now? Well, he's very successful and being interviewed in America and a very good actor. So I did that with him. I think one of the lines of that was, go on in, put the boot in. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle. Subtle. So those were the softly softies. And then I went for Play for Today. Right, which, which was sort of a flagship on BBC One, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. And it was an individual play each week. Yeah. yeah. And also, but then at the same time which clashed, I was asked to do the Dick Emery show. So unbeknown to me, my agent said, right, you're doing the Dick Emery show. And I said, oh. I'll... Why couldn't you do both? Well, she said, um, no, uh, you didn't get that job, the play for today. But I found out after that I had got the job, but one of her other girls had was second in line. So oh, she so got, the agent was playing a bit of a game. So the agent got one of her other girls to do the play for today. And I did the Dick Emery show. So what did you do on the Dick Emery show? Again, another big, big show for those that remember it. I mean Oh you are you. awful but I like you. you. <laughs> And that was the only line every week, and it was used by that character every, every single week, time. Every week, every week. But we were waiting for it. Fabulous. He had so many characters that were, were fabulous. This was, a, gosh, I, I don't know, it was, a, it was a sketch show, so we were on board a boat, and he was a captain, and, um, you know, cheeky sketch. You know, I loved Dick Emery, but I remember he walked into um, rehearsals, and he had a whole all this leather gear on and I thought he did it for a joke and I started laughing I went oh that's really funny <laughs> oh dear that's really funny and he went and they looked at me and it was quiet I went oh my goodness he'd come in Just on his in. motorbike okay all in leathers so needless to say I didn't work with 
Dick Henry after that one. Oh, really? Oh, a little faux pas like that. A little faux pas. Yeah, what a shame. But from that, I got a series with Ken Dodd. So I played... He didn't wear leather. He didn't wear leather. (laughs) I can't imagine Ken Dodd in leather. No, but we did have a lovemaking scene on Skeggy Beach. French, Did you? French with lot. Ken Dodd. With Ken Dodd. Not a lot of people can say that. They can't. Where were the Diddy men at this time? <laughs> I don't know. We, they were missing. Thank goodness. <laughs> he was lovely to work with. Um, he's a legend, isn't he? Oh gosh, he's a legend. Yeah. You know, I went to see his live shows, and it's like hours and hours and hours. But he holds the audience. Yeah. I mean, he's such a hard-working guy, yeah, isn't yeah. he? I mean, I just think he's amazing. Yeah. And we lost him now, and it's so sad. I know. Sadly. So sad. I did a whole series with him playing the girl in every different. Um, Sketch. So I played lots of sketches in that. And, that and, and also, you're working with these greats like Dick Emery, like Ken Dodd, and you're learning. You're learning your craft, you're learning about timing, and you don't realise it at the time. But, it, you know, because I think when I worked with the two Ronnies, they said, you know, your timing's fabulous. And I'm going, well, it's probably something I've gleaned without even realising it, without... Yeah, I mean, working. working with those people must be a real privilege. But yeah. as you say, you're going to learn, you're going to pick it up, and it becomes yeah. natural. And then that's yeah. why you've got the great comic timing. Yes. And obviously, you know, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett recognise that. That's a that's the ultimate accolade, isn't well, it? Well, Ronnie Barker saw me in the Ken Dodd show. Ah, is that how you got the? And the that's two how I got the two Ronnies. All right. And what did you do on the two Ronnies? Well, they said, "Oh, Vicky, we really like you, and we'd like to use you regularly." No, well, no, they didn't say this first because they gave me this sketch, and I think what they did was throw me in at the deep end and see if I could handle it. So they dressed me up as a boy with a moustache, dirty face, cap, Victorian newspaper boy. And you'll probably see it on Christmas. And then you home in, and I've got this enormous cleavage, so from a distance I look like a boy. And then you hone in, and I've got a cleavage. Read all about it, Phantom Raspberry Bar of Old London Town. That was my shouting newspaper Victorian vendor. And that skit was a big skit, wasn't it, the Phantom Raspberry Bar? It was a big skit. It was was a very big big skit. skit. But then I did loads of other... uh, sketches with them and became a regular as did my sister and my sister did the Bodie Doyle sketch with the two Ronnies that was a sort of a send-up of the uh, professionals I think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, doing all this work you must have had quite a lot of recognition because again the two Ronnies mm. was prime time Saturday night it was the big show mm. it was the big Christmas show as well yeah, wasn't yeah. it it was the top Christmas yeah. show you must have been becoming quite well known I was becoming quite well known I mean sometimes with the general public uh, but more so in the industry so it was you know the BBC didn't pay lots of money at that time but I was special high because I'd worked with them for quite a lot and, and it was regular work too and it was regular work yeah people were getting to know me uh, yeah and people were asking for me because I remember um, Des O'Connor had his show at the time and he'd asked me to be on his show and I couldn't do it because I was doing something else but you know when you're asked for by these people and you think this O'Connor, is great again, yeah. you know, whatever you think of Des he was big he was big yeah. he was yeah. huge yeah so and lovely bloke as well yeah from East London to the whole of London on podcast radio we are East London Radio. You've done all this amazing work on drama shows, on comedy shows. So how did Allo Allo start? How did you get the part? Um, I've been for quite a few series, a comedy series for the BBC. It, it was a, a cruel way of casting, actually, um, that they got all these girls up and then eliminated them and then eliminated and then I was down to the last lot. And it was 99.9% you've got like this. like X Factor cast. Yes, it was. 99.9% you've got this. And then I went back and David Croft was there. And, um, the writer, of course. The writer of Alola. I didn't get the job. 99.9. And did not I get did the not job. after meeting David. And I thought, well, okay, fine. And so, were you auditioning for a particular part? It was the hairdresser in, in the hairdresser with. Um, it didn't do very well, that series. So that went by the by. Then uh, my sister and I went for Come Back, Mrs. Noah. 
which was, um, I think it was a Crofton Perry, I think, set in space with Molly Sugden, Ian Lavender. Very good series and, and very funny. And David couldn't make his mind up whether to use me or Anne. And Anne got the part. But in it, in one of the episodes, there was a part for a French-made robot. And Anne said to David, why don't you use Vicky? He said, what a good idea. So I played a French-made robot. So obviously, when Alo was coming up, they went, oh, French, 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 French maid. Oh, what about Vicky? She played the French maid robot. And so I went to read for that. And when I read the script, you know, downstairs before you go up in the BBC, it was such a funny, such, I mean, I was laughing out loud. And that's rare. You know, you don't get a, a script and you're laughing out loud while you're reading it. And then I went to, up for the audition. I read for Michelle of the Resistance and Yvette. He said, how's your French accent? I said, yeah, fine. So I just did it once. And he went, yes, that's fine, darling. So can you do some outrageous French accent for us now? Oh, but of course. My French is very good. It is so lovely being here with you, Paul. <laughs> it's taking me back straight away. I feel like Gordon Kay. <laughs> oh, it is lovely in your little broom cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Yvette Carplon, she was a major character. I mean, you, know, you and yeah. Rene were, you know, you were continually sort of canoodling, cuddling. Mm. Any opportunity you had, you were yeah. there with Rene, weren't yes, you? Yes, yes. It was, and um, it, and everyone had a line, you know, a punch like, like um, listen very carefully, I shall say this only when, sorry, it is I, Leclerc, or oh. you stupid woman, or good moaning. And I used to say to David... It's all coming back. I know. I used to say to David, I said... Dave, can I have a can I have a catchphrase, please? No, darling, we've got enough. No, please, can I have a, no, darling, we've got enough. No, oh. so, so I never got a catchphrase. Well, but you didn't need one. Well, really, I did, did I did, did I did get one. Yes, because what happened is I used to read, I read my script, and every week I went, oh, Rene, oh, 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 H. Rene. So if you look in the early ones, it was oh, Rene, oh, Rene. So then I watched um, Madame Fanny, played by Rose Hill. So her line would be. Oh, the flashing knobs, okay? So these were the knobs on the end of the bed that we used to um, call up the, um, the radio. Of and course. Of course. Of course, as you do. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and Madame Fanny, but when she got the line, she got, oh, the flashing knobs. More camera time. And then I realised. So I thought, oh, I'll start elongating my O's, right? So I started to do it, and I could see David cross. I went, oh, Rene. And David looked at me, and he went, didn't say anything, right, got away with it. And then the next one, I went, oh, Rene. He looked at me, got away with it. And then we had a director said, why don't you elongate it even more and pop behind the bar so they know you're coming up from behind the bar. So then it was, oh, Rene. And that became my catchphrase by default. <laughs> very smart, very clever. Thank you. Uh, and no one stopped you. No, yeah. he looked at me, but I think he thought it was clever and he appreciated it. And, and I just used what he gave me. So I deciphered that, just elongated the O's. And um, so that was my catchphrase. Yeah. Again, that show was a household name. It was a huge, huge success on yeah. the BBC. I wonder whether you could do it today. I mean, because the, the idea of you know, having this bunch of people in, effectively, it was um, France behind the enemy lines, wasn't it? In yes. German-occupied territory. Yeah. And I, I think it's still very funny. I think yeah. the writing is still brilliant. But I wonder whether now we're in times when maybe Hello, Hello doesn't work. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it does because it's set in a period. It's set in wartime, so it doesn't date. I think that's why it's had such longevity. Not only that, I think Jeremy Lloyd told me that we sold to over 80 countries. So it's like Australia. It's everywhere. Everywhere still. 
still. So you still, it's all over the world. Lithuania, Poland, Romania. Everyone comes up and recognizes me from, from all the other countries. You know, they loved that show. And, you know, we went to, I think, Bulgaria. And it's been shown, I think, more times than here. You know, so we were like big megastars. This was a so couple of years ago. You've been into all sorts of languages. Absolutely, absolutely. How is your Bulgarian? <laughs> Not very good. <laughs> Don't ask me to do that one. <laughs> I just can't imagine a Bulgarian accent trying to do a pseudo-French accent. I know. We met the girl that, um, the woman that deciphered it, and she did it in a certain way to actually get the comedy over as well, because that's that's quite difficult. But I, that's why I think it's lasted because it was set in a period, and it was about wartime, and it's schoolboy humour. And I think that schoolboy humour doesn't date. And long may it go on. I get people now because it's shown three times on yesterday on Sundays. And I think they brought it back on Dave every day. And people are really watching it. They're watching these sort of programmes on these channels more than they're watching mainstream telly. Yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. does. It, 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 the writing and the performances are stunning. I mean, the characters are also... It's full of so many fine actors and so many great characters. And, of course, there was 10 years of it. I mean, it lasted yes. a long time, so there's lots of episodes. Absolutely. Ten, uh, we, yes, we went on longer than the war. And, <laughs> <laughs> Good line. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and also, um, you know, David Croft and Jeremy Lloyd, when, when I first auditioned, I didn't hear for six months because the BBC were not sure whether to go ahead with it because it was about the war. Well, they were nervous. They were nervous. And Dave, David said to me, um, you know, Vicky, we send up everyone. So this is how he described how he wrote for people. So the French were Randy, the Germans were kinky, and the English were stupid. And that's how he wrote for everyone. So we sent up everyone. It's a lot, you know, it's, and I think that's the key to comedy, you know, send up everyone. And then you get the laughter out of it. And then I bumped into recently, I was doing a thing for the Royal Variety. Um, I went to see the show and I'm on the board there. And uh, Lord Grade was there. And I was talking to him because he was in charge of Allo Allo. And I didn't realise it was him that read the script and said, we have to do this. So it was him that commissioned him. Good for him. Good see, for him. Mr. Yeah, Grade made yeah, some fine yeah, decisions yeah, yeah, yeah. in his time. Yeah. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. To find out more, visit eastlondonradio.org.uk. Vicky Michelle is my guest. So, look, Vicky, let's talk about yeah. another long-running soap and still uh, there, and that was Emmerdale. Yes, I mean, that was great, you know, because it's really nice to get into a, a soap. You know, because it's regular work and you think, this is it. I can lay back, relax a bit, don't have to worry too much about where my next job's coming from. So I got this part. Patricia Foster. Patricia Foster, absolutely. So I was the mother of Richard Grieve, who was in the relationship with Matthew Bowes. So they were the, the gay couple. and uh, Matthew had been in it forever. So they were getting married. So I've turned up. I'm, I'm English, but I've been living in Australia and I come back with a little dog. And the storyline is going to be, I'm the mother, coming back in, Patrick Moore and I are probably going to have um, uh, an affair at some point. This is all in, you know. So I did a few episodes, and then there was a new producer. And so the new producer came in and got rid of my son. How could he? <laughs> the gay son it was went. a she. <laughs> and yes. What happened? They wrote it into the script. So the two of them left probably to go to Australia or something like that. I can't remember now because I was too mortified about the fact that I was in it. And, the, and I love Patrick because I'd worked with him in Panto and I knew him. And I thought, this is going to be fun. And then, you know, as it, what happens, producers come in, they want to put their own stamp on it, so they get rid of some and bring in new... And so they got rid of my son, so that was the end of my Emmerdale. But there's many other, many other TV shows. Let's pick a couple more out that you did. I mean, you've also done quite a few game shows, actually. 
Oh, gosh, yes. What game shows have I done? Um, I did Celebrity Squares and all the shows. I worked, Bob Monkhouse was amazing. You did Celebrity Squares. Quite did, a few yeah. episodes of Celebrity yes, Squares, I think. Yes, I did. And, um, you did Blankety Blank. Blank. I loved that. Les Dawson. Oh, because I did a series with Les. I played his, you know, the girl that was in all the time. So his right-hand girl. And Les was one of the just generous, lovely people to work with. Because you do work with some comedians that do not like you to have the laugh. And he didn't mind. He didn't mind. He was fine about that. Because Les was just that, that style was so laid back, mm. almost almost sort of a disorganised style he had, yes. didn't he? Yes, but so talented. Very. You know, pretended to play the piano badly, but could play it brilliantly. Just such a lovely person. And he mm. lost his wife and then he met Tracy, you know, and then they had Charlotte and, you know, all of that uh, was going on. I met. So I was with him for quite a long time over the years because I worked with him right through the early years um, to more, more shows that he did more recently. And um, so I got to know him and his family and that. But, you know, everyone loved Les. You'd go out and people would just come up and cuddle him because he was such a genuinely lovely person and so talented. Was that part of his success, do you think? The fact he was nice to work with and people loved him? I think that is the part of anyone's success who's really, really successful. You get people in our business that are liked and you go, oh, I like so-and-so, I like so-and-so. And then you get the people go, oh, I love him. You know, it's a bit like, you know, Biggins. I love Biggins, you know. Uh, and it's look, funny, isn't it, Christopher yeah. Biggins? I mean, we're not quite sure what Christopher Biggins does, <laughs> but we all love him for it. Yeah, but he's a really good actor. He's a really Is good... He? he was in I, Claudius and all of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's quite social with things. And um, so I think he got known for going out more than his acting, but he's a really good actor not, as well. And a, a lovely way, person. Not a bad way to earn money. No, you exactly. get known for going out. That's exactly. pretty, pretty And he was great in The Jungle. Oh, he was amazing. Yeah. He was. He's. I mean, I always think he's fun. Whenever you watch him, he makes you laugh. You he feel does. good. He's got... He's, there's something it's, about it's it. Like, it's like Lorraine Kelly. You love Lorraine Kelly. Yeah, you know what I mean? The Lorraine people. is generally lovely too. She's yes, lovely. But they're the people that survive in this business. So it's the people that are loved by the general public mm. that, that keep on. So Phil Schofield, you know, yeah, people like that. You also have done so many pantos, and I'm doing panto mm. again, but you seem to have done every panto. You've done Snow White, you've done Aladdin, you've done Mother Goose, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Robin Hood. I mean, you know, you, do you ever see these coming around again in your sleep? No, I mean, you get used to playing them. I mean, for the last few years, I've been doing playing fairy, and I really do like playing the baddie. And I started off as baddie, right? My, my very first one was at the um, Alexander Theatre in Birmingham. I took over from Honor Blackman, which is a really weighty part. Well, she's so she, a yes, big yes, man. she's That's a weight. Well, not a at lot. that time. You know, I was bubbling under, and I'm thinking, oh my god, she, she'd done Goldfinger. Yeah, well, I waited up. I, I really, I deepened my voice, and that was a fantastic playing Wicked Queen. Uh, in Snow White and Louise English was my Snow White and uh, and actually um, I had a really lovely time in fact the Allo Allo stage show we'd taken it out at the Prince of Wales been to Australia been to New Zealand with it and then I'd accepted the panto at Birmingham and they wanted to take the Allo Allo stage show to the Palladium and the producer wouldn't let me go so I missed that first Palladium. I did the second Palladium. There's a recurring story here. You're offered one thing and something else so is getting comes, in yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. You're obviously so much in demand. Oh, bless. Well, that's nice. And lucky, you know, touch wood. But I was very happy. And Louise English was fabulous, very good um, performer and singer. And I actually got pregnant while I was doing the show. And I thought it was the gloves, that these gloves, I had these awful hat so gloves. So was the costume being taken out as the season went on? No, no, because it was just, yeah. It was early days. Yeah, early days. But I kept saying, oh, I feel sick, these gloves, because I had the Hags gloves and they were like oh, rubber right. gloves. You know, when rubber gloves have gone off? And so I was wearing those and it was making me feel sick. So I was yeah. being sick, but I didn't realise I was pregnant. So you took the gloves off? Yes, I did. So that's one of my favourite pantos, because that's when I got pregnant. And panto you like the least? 
I like them all. You yeah. like them all. I mean, I only... Favourite parts, then? I mean, you The Wicked Queen. The so Wicked Queen. Wicked Queen you Cut like. out her heart and bring it to me. <laughs> you did that rather too well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Wicked is really good. When I first did Wicked, it was... Because uh, I'd been doing Fairy, Genie of the Ring, all of those. Mm. And it's, it's difficult because usually they're cheering you and now they're booing you. So it's something, a mindset you have to get through. And now I absolutely love it. When you're doing Panto, it must be quite demanding because you're doing a lot of shows, aren't mm-hmm. you? You do maybe two a day on many occasions. How do you keep up with the energy with the Panto? I just do. I just, I think I'm an energy person. Well, I you just, are high energy, I, I can just, tell that. I just don't do that. You love it. I love it. I love whatever I do, you know, and I think that that's the, and I love the kids' faces in Panto, you know, and they believe those characters and you can see their little faces. You see the parents looking at the kids, you know, um, and, and also it's good therapy for the grown-ups because they get rid of all of their angst of, you know, Christmas shopping and they go, boo, in fact, they're Panto, the loud. you can suspend life, can't you? I mean, Panto's yes. a fantasy world. Yeah, all yeah. the problems of the day, you can forget those. Yeah. Just immerse yourself in the panto yes and they boo and yeah, they cheer yeah, and, and it's yeah. a great way of you know renting any Get your emotions. birthday mentioned on stage yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of that and, it, and also it's like celebrating christmas for a few weeks or months rather than three days you know because i always think all oh, christmas is you know we, we've got this big build-up and then it's finished yeah you know it's over Whereas in Panto, you're still... You can still, extend the run till the middle of January. Yeah, really, I'm just a big kid. That's really what it is. <laughs> I, 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 long may you continue to be. I, I, I'll try and emulate you. you. You're still working incredibly hard and Thank loving you. it, obviously. I do, I do. I love it. And I'm really, really lucky because there's so many of our actors and actresses are out of work and, and it's sad there's not enough work for them. And I count myself very lucky to keep working. And it all started, really, because you could read. You could read a script and bring it to life. Yes, I, I've always, yes, I think. And, and my whole family, my mum was an actress, you know, and so we were always brought up singing and dancing and she was in The Glass Mountain, and, uh, which is a brilliant film. Have you ever seen The Glass Mountain? It's such a good film. And, um, and she worked with Terry Thomas back in the day and then she gave it up oh, when Terry she had Thomas. me. I know, I know. Yeah. And uh, she, she gave it up when she had me. So, um, yeah, so I think it's in the family. Dad was always a show-off and told jokes and things. And all my sisters are really got fantastic personalities and, and they're fun. Vicky, Michelle, finally, a last word from Yvette, I think. But thank you very much. It's been a total pleasure. So can Yvette maybe do a final goodbye? Oh, Paul, it has been so wonderful chatting to you in your broom cupboard. I'm wishing you lots of success and I hope this is a fabulous show. <laughs> The very bubbly and hugely hardworking Vicky Michelle, and I'll say that only once. Next, we meet another very talented actress, Marina Sirtis, who went from poverty to stardom in Hollywood, working on Star Trek The Next Gen for Paramount for seven seasons and four feature films and more. I asked her about her first acting role in London. I actually got a job before I finished at drama school. Um, I auditioned to play Ophelia at the Connaught Theatre Worthing and ended up doing a season there. Um, some lovely plays and um, then went on to do bits and bobs in TV and uh, basically I was a regional theatre actress. And when you started in theatre did you have family support for that? No, no, sorry I laughed. Um, No, my mum, when I told my mum at the age of three or four that I was going to be an actress, what she heard in her head was I'm going to walk the streets at night, being an old-fashioned Greek mum and so they really, really didn't want me to go on the stage. In fact, when I did school plays, I used to have to lie when we had rehearsal and tell her that I had detention. And I was so bad in school. I mean, I was actually, you know, it, I was good at 
the, the book stuff, but I was a naughty girl. And so she totally believed that I had, you know... So you were in detention all the time, I then. was in detention five days a week, yeah, and she bought it. Um, I had to secretly audition for Guildhall, uh, as well as apply to university. Um, and when I got in, then I finally had to tell her that I wasn't going to go to Bristol and I was going to go to Guildhall. And what was the reaction? Uh, horror. In fact, when I was at Worthing, my, my family would come on a Sunday when, of course, you know, got the day off. And uh, they came on Sunday because she didn't want to see me on stage. Wow. The fact you're doing your West End debut now means you must still love live theatre. We'll talk about all your TV and your movies later, but there must be something about theatre that's brought you back to that. Um, it's been my first love my whole life. When I left Guildhall, I thought I was going to be, you know, the next great classical theatrical actress. Um, didn't work out that way because I ended up on this space show in Hollywood, but um, that's always where my, my heart lies. Unfortunately, as we all know, you really can't make a living well, you can make a living, but you can't save any money if you're, you know, working in the theatre. Um, so it's, it's kind of, I call it the velvet handcuffs of um, TV and film, where you have to do it to keep the lights on, you know, but my heart has always been on the stage. But as an actress, what is it about being on the stage that gives you that sort of feeling of love? What, what is it that you get back from it? Well, I hope I get a feeling of love. Well, I'm sure you oh. will. Get, I'm, <laughs> look, people are going to love to see you, but as, you, know, you obviously like doing it. You must do it for a reason. You're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for other reasons. Yeah. Um, well, there's something wonderful about doing something in the right order, you know, beginning, middle and end, having that arc. That arc. Um, and then there's nothing like the energy that you get from a live audience, um, it's instant and it's, it's, it's kind of visceral. I mean, you just feel it in your whole body. Um, and you just don't get that in film and TV. I no mean, retakes, of course. And then, of course, yeah, there's no retakes because if you mess up on, on film, you can always do it again. So you've just got to improvise and get through it? Well, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully I won't have to improvise. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it'll be done and dusted and ready to go by the time we open on the 25th. Well, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. And I mean, having you in the West End, it's fantastic to have you here. So you talked about having an unhappy childhood. You came over here uh, the, uh, with Greek parents mm -hmm. um, and I guess came over with probably very modest beginnings. Uh, well, no, well, not modest is, is nothing. A, nothing. And my, my parents literally arrived with the clothes on their backs because they had to do a runner from Greece because my, my dad was on a list and he was going to be arrested. Um, he was on the wrong side of the civil war in Greece after the war. Um, and someone tipped him off that they were coming for him. And so they literally did a moonlight fat flip with me, my mum pregnant with me, six months pregnant with me. And um, our, our first home was a coal cellar in Hackney. Literally? Yeah. A coal cellar in Hackney? Yeah. So you had nothing, you had no money, nothing? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. It was, um, I don't know how they did it. I mean, I look back now and think, goodness gracious, how did they ever manage to achieve anything starting like that? So what did your mum and dad do? They arrived here. What, what did your dad and mum do to learn, make some money? And, well, my dad was a tailor. Okay. So he got a job in a factory and my mum was a dressmaker, machinist, you know, like most Greek women, <laughs> machining away. And um, they, you know, they just worked their socks off. My dad would go to, you know, he'd work a 10-hour shift at the factory and then he'd go to night school to learn English and how to read and write English. And um, they did what they had to do. And, 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 you know, eventually managed to buy a house. And mind you, the houses were much cheaper than, you know, to be honest, to like 5,000 pounds, I think it was. But that was a lot of money in those days. It was, it was. Um, they bought it with another couple, actually, and we lived upstairs and they lived downstairs. And then we had to buy them out when I hit their little boy on the head with a brick. 
Accidentally, I hope. No, no, not what accidentally. Was the story? He, he must have something major <laughs> he, to brush you off. Well, he was just getting on my nerves, I think. So um, that was the end of that. I've never been backward in coming forward. Was he okay? Did he survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, didn't end just up got... in the hospital. I mean, I okay. didn't, you know, give him a concussion or anything, okay. I think. Thank God for that. Yes. It wouldn't be very good for the people. Before the days of lawsuits. Yeah, yeah exactly. But so this is in, um, you were born in Hackney, but then you were brought up in Harringay. Yes. Uh, they moved to Harringay when I was about three. And that was when um, we bought, they bought the house. And um, I went to school in Tottenham, which explains my passion for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, Must be quite happy this season then. Oh, doing a little dance. I bet you are. Dance. Yeah, I'll be there on Saturday at the at brand new stadium watching the game on the big screens. Um, yeah, waited 50 years for this team, Paul. Absolutely. Well, it's been an amazing season for them. Oh, gosh, my heart's palpitating just thinking about it. Although um, you have obviously then went to America, and we'll talk about that in a minute, you still sound very like you're British, very English, you know, you, you East London, you're supporting Tottenham, you still kept your English roots. Yeah, well, I don't talk like this in America because I would have to come with subtitles because they wouldn't understand. So, a how word do you speak in America? A quick I preview. Talk, I talk like um, I talk American like, so that they understand me. Like you do on Star Trek. Like I do on Star Trek, yeah. Yeah. But it's great, it's great you, you sounding so British there. You, you talked to me earlier before we started about being English and not British. Yes. This is something that's quite important to you. It is, actually. Um, I, I, and I, as I said to you, the first time I hear a Scot call themselves British, I will call myself British, but I've never heard that. So I, I say I'm English, because I, I think it's only the English who call themselves British, and it's always been a bit of a bugbear with me. Mm. Well, I think I'm going to take that away and call myself English too in future. So we've got you um, of poor parents, but your mum and dad are working hard, they're making ends meet, you're going to drama school, you're doing your first rep when did you think maybe I should go to America I mean you must have must have been a very big dream to think I'm going to go to LA and be in movies actually it wasn't my idea oh yes um, I was I was I had been dumped by the at that time the person I thought was the love of my life and um, I how was, dare he I, how, exactly I hope he's he's sorry now um, but uh, it was actually Trudy Styler's idea I went to drama school with Trudy and we, um, we were very, very good friends and she just got s sick of me whinging and, uh, about this bloke and so she said, oh for goodness sake, just go to LA, they'll love you in LA and that put the idea in my head and then of course I had the best year I'd ever had professionally in the UK um, and of course when I said to my agents, well, don't put me up for anything else, I'm off to LA, they were like, but, 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 no. and I said, no, I just know I have to go. I had to put as many thousands of miles between me and this chap, so um, I you went. You say your best year in, in the UK, what have you been doing that I'd done made a lot your best year? I'd done, I'd done a lot of tellies. You, you know, did Jim Davison, didn't you? I did Jim Davison, I did Cat's Eyes, I did, I did a bunch of stuff that year. And, um, but, you know, back so in So things were going well then? They, well, they were and they weren't, because I'm very, you know, I'm very ethnic looking. And we're talking about the mid-80s now, and... It was very different back then for ethnic actresses. I was never the lead. I was always a supporting character. Because of your look, you, yeah. got, you got an exotic look. Yeah, yeah, because I'm called, yeah, kind of exotic. And so basically, um, I just got fed up with that too. I thought, you know, why can't I play the lead, the lead character in something? And um, so off I went, and I cried all the way there. Did you buy a one-way ticket to no, LA? Oh no, 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 no! I bought a, I, it, I bought a round-trip ticket, um, but uh, I didn't even realise at the time because I had never travelled business class. I have now. Um, I realised 
I was so upset they upgraded me to business class. Nice. And I kept, I cried all the way. And the, at one point, the airline attendant came up and said, "Would you like to watch the captain fly the plane?" Which of course you can't do now, no, but then no, you could. I could. And did, I did you did you I go did. on the deck? I went. It's Amazing. boring. It's boring. Is it boring? Nothing's happening. Yeah. Be like th- flying the Enterprise, yeah, surely. Th- no, I think he just asked me up there because he'd seen me on the way in and he was chatting me up. Good and experience me up for of being on the, on the bridge of the Enterprise, surely. <laughs> Nothing happens. <laughs> and when this broke the scones out, I was gone. I was like, oh, I'm going to have my scone now. You're listening to Podcast Radio. Marina Sirtis is my guest on Private Lives, and we're talking about her life, her acting. And then we are into L.A. So you've arrived in L.A. in tears. You've had your business class ticket. Did you have any work when you arrived in L.A.? Or were you literally just starting from nothing? Had nothing. Um, fortunately, Sting and Trudy were there when I arrived. And they said, well, come and stay with us for the weekend um, and then you can move into your apartment on Monday. And they sent a car. She said, Trudy said, I'm going to send a car for you. She sent a limo. I had never seen a limo and I was so embarrassed. I actually sat right behind the driver so that I could talk to him. Um, Rather than the back seat at the very back. back. A mile away. Um, So that was my introduction to Los Angeles. Um, And my my second day, I'm walking down Malibu Beach on November the 7th. 1986 and uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven it was gorgeous and I'd left a rainy England so um, uh, Trudy had um, had a friend who was an agent and um, I went to see her on the Monday and I got a job in five days that fast yeah wow I got a job in a show called Hunter which was a cop show which starred a guy called Fred Dreyer who was an ex-American football player and I played an Aussie um, and they said, "Can you do the Aussie accent?" No, quickly? this is this is the thing. Can I, you do an Aussie accent? Not really, not really. Because <laughs> <laughs> they said, "Is that an authentic Australian accent?" And I said, and I lied, and I said, "Yes." I said, "Well, did you not know that Melbourne has the largest Greeks community outside of at, outside of Greece?" And uh, I lived there for seven years. Lie, lie. Of but course, did it convincingly, clearly. Did it convincingly enough for an American because they can't tell the difference between a London accent and an Aussie accent, right. and so it, it worked. Yeah. So how did Star Trek come about? I auditioned. I mean, basically, um, the breakdowns went out, and my agent submitted me actually for the part of Tasha Yar, not Deanna Troy. Who was the security? Who was officer. the security chief? Yeah, and Denise Crosby, who was play, who eventually played Tasha, she was auditioning for Deanna Troy purely because the um, character description said that Tasha was dark and Deanna was blonde. Um, but when they, when we went in and they saw we actually suited the other person's character. You actually got the other role? Yeah, we had three auditions, I had six auditions and three auditions in, they switched me. Six auditions? Yeah. My goodness, I mean, what do you do for six auditions? Well, I mean, do they not tell us? Same thing. Same thing over and over again, yeah, with just more people in the room every time. Okay, so I yeah. guess it gets better and better. More people say, yes, she's good. Well, then they, and eventually you get a yes. Your last audition, which is the test, what they call the test, um, you know, the whole studio hierarchy are in there making sure they're making the right decision. So this is at Paramount? Yeah. This is at the Paramount lot? Yeah. Okay. So you were quite lucky, I guess, not getting Tasha Yar because she didn't survive the well, full she, seven she, series, yeah, seasons, she, did no, she? she quit. 
Oh, she quit. Yeah, I wouldn't oh. have quit, so she would have survived. It wasn't the writers that wrote her out. No, no, she no, no, quit. no. She, she, she didn't take to episodic television. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, you did. So you started in this new, new role as, as counsellor. And, of course, this is the first time Star Trek's been reinvented. It had been William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy up to that point. How did you feel about that? I mean, it must have been a bit daunting thinking we're now going to rewrite Star Trek because it hadn't been done at that point. Well, uh, to be honest, we were kind of... We were working in a sort of vacuum because... Um, we started shooting in June and the show didn't go out until September for so those months in between we were just having fun and filming all these great episodes well actually some of them weren't so great in the first season let's be honest um, and then the the pressure hit when we were just about to air and then it seemed that every reporter and his dog wanted to interview us and that was when I realised that for the first time in my life and my career I was doing something that millions of people were going to watch and have an opinion about and to be honest the fans were not happy that we were around, we were coming um, their, their attitude was how dare you try to take the place of our heroes and so I would go to conventions where 30 people showed up with their arms crossed glowering at me you know so um, we really had to win our audience um, which we did and of course our show ended up being the most successful of all yeah. when you started too I think your character was, was somewhat different you were very much a sort of a counsellor you weren't the you weren't on the bridge the main bridge deck officer you were sort of subordinate but that changed during the season didn't it yeah uh, in the first season um, my contracts um, you, it's weird in, in, in America they kind of in the first season they kind of split up the pickup dates what they call um, and so originally I, my contract said all shows produced and then after the after the pilot they said 10 out of 13 then after the, that 13 they said 7 out of 13 so I knew that um, something dodgy was happening um, and Years later, um, I found out from Majel Barrett Roddenberry, who played my mum on the show and was also the boss's wife, um, that I was going to get fired because Jean came home one day and said, we have one too many women on the show and you need a security chief and you need a doctor, but you really don't need a psychologist. And so I knew I was... And, and, I, and, I, and then I saw Hollywood at its worst because when I was hired, I was the blue-eyed girl. And then it got to the point that when I was on the set and you know one of the producers was on the set, as I walked towards them, they would literally turn on their heel and walk away so they wouldn't have to talk to me. Really, to avoid the confrontation? To avoid, to avoid a conversation. In a conversation. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So how did that turn around? Because obviously Beverly Crusher was the other woman, yeah. wasn't she, the, the Doctor character. But you did indeed succeed. And in fact, you became a very major part. I mean, you, you ended up sitting next to Patrick Stewart, John Luke Picard, on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, as an equal almost. Yeah. Well, that was the irony of the whole thing, because I was the one who was going to get fired. And at the end of the first season, I was the only one of the three left. What happened to the others? Well, Denise quit and Gates was let go. So you, so for that season she was let go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she came back. Yeah, she came back in the but, third. But season. she was let go for the second season. Yeah. Wow. So you 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 survived. I, and su I survived the, the culling of the women. Yes. Wow. Yeah. My God, that 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 is Hollywood at its worst. Though, it to is. say one woman is all we require. I mean, well, they said how? two. They were like two women, and then of course they hired another doctor for for that second season, and that didn't work out, and so they asked Gates to come back. Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on Private Lives.
So here we are, season two, and uh, you're on the bridge, and it's all going quite well, having survived the cult from season one. Yes, and um, actually one of the most poignant moments of my career, um, Jonathan Frakes got married in the first season hiatus, as we call it. This is Commander Riker. Yes, Commander Riker. He married uh, Jeannie Francis, who's, a, who's one of the biggest soap stars in America. And um, at the wedding, Gene Roddenberry took me aside and said, um, I thought I should tell you, after everything you've been through last year, that the first episode of the second season is your episode. It was an episode called The Child. You must have been cock-a-hoop. I was bawling, actually. I mean, just the, just the, all the anxiety that had built up over that year. I mean, I nearly had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I mean not literally, but I mean, my, my nerves were just shot. And um, so when he told me that, I just lost it. And uh, I thought, okay, I think I'm safe now. Mind you, I didn't apply for my green card until the third season because I knew they had to re-advertise my job and I still wasn't 100% secure in my own head. But yeah, Jean telling me that at Jonathan's wedding was um, huge for me. Well, you had an on-screen uh, sort of on-off little love affair, didn't you, with yeah. uh, with Riker? Yeah. We well, it was not in any of the scripts. I mean, oh. it was in the first episode, right. and then because he became like the stud of the galaxy, and was you know, boffing every a different alien every week, um, they decided to let the the uh, the relationship die. But Jonathan and I didn't let it die. So we would play looks and... So it was all improvised by the two of you, we really? We kept it going, so... Um, and thank goodness, because, you know, in the last movie, they actually married us off. Yeah, and then Michael Dawn, too, Wharf. There was a little bit of a love affair yeah, there, that, too. Yeah, I didn't like that, I didn't like that at all. But that was also... That was the writers? Yeah, I didn't like that. I mean, I just thought they'd seen Beauty and the Beast once too many times, actually. <laughs> it was, like, not very original. And plus, he's my best friend in America, and it's a bit weird snogging your best friend. I didn't take to that particularly well. But you did it anyway, I did guess. Did it anyway, did yeah. it anyway, yeah. So once you became a main frame, a main star of the show, how did you feel? I mean, there you were with, you know, Patrick Stewart and, and Jonathan Frakes and Michael Dorn and this, this cast, and you were there. You were absolutely at the centre of this action. The show had become a success by this point. People were loving it. The, the prospect of movies was coming along. You must have thought, wow, I've, I've really made it in Hollywood now. Well, I did, actually, um, except that. Again, because, you know, we've got to think it was a long time ago. The show finished in 1994, and then we did the four films. But back then, sci-fi was alternative entertainment. And I'm going to blow my own trumpet here a little bit. Well, the show's trumpet. I think the reason that the whole sci-fi and comic book genre has taken off the way it has to the point that it is now the biggest thing at the box office is because of the success of TNG. Yeah. I mean, people poo-pooed us, you know. Oh, you're just doing this little space show on TV, you know. Um, we didn't even have a slot. We were syndicated, so it was one of those things, you know, check your local listings to see when the show's on. We couldn't even say it's on at 8 o'clock on Wednesday, you know. So we really, really built an audience. And we were the first, sh first show that was made for syndication. Everything up until that point was either game shows or reruns of sitcoms. So we blazed a trail in so many different ways. Um, and uh, I don't think many of the others will say it, but as I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm still London girl and I say what I think. I, I, think, I think we're, I think not totally responsible, but I think our success 
played a big part in, in what we're watching now. Do you think, had Next Generation not been so successful, that the others wouldn't have followed? I mean, since we've had Deep Space Nine, we had Voyager, we've had the Discovery series, we've got the new one coming out now with, with, Patrick. with, uh, with Patrick Stewart again. I mean, all of these probably owe quite a lot to Next Generation. Oh, yeah. I mean, we thought we'd do a year and then we'd get cancelled. Um, and I think the studio thought we'd do a year or two and then we'd, got, we'd be gone. Um, so I think the success of the show was a surprise to everybody. Um, we were getting 20 million viewers a week, you know, so these days that would be huge because there's, you know, there's so many other avenues to watch different things on. But um, yeah, I think, the, I think the success of the show really, really surprised everybody. The other thing too, of course, is Star Trek's gone round the world. So there you were doing this in LA, but in fact, this was shows being seen in the UK, all over Europe. 120 countries. 120 countries. So there's no way to hide, is there really? Because well, everybody knows you. Well, no, there is and there isn't. Because um, I mean, you recognise me when you walk, you know, today. But um, because a, my hair is now a different colour, and b, because I don't sound like Deanna Troy when I when I'm in England. Um, and also, my eyes are a different colour because I wore black Your contact lenses. Your eyes are darker lens. in yeah, the show. Black. Yeah, yes. I wore black contact lenses. People kind of do a double take and think, is that her or isn't it her? And so I, I actually can live quite a normal life, which is a blessing because um, Patrick can't. You know, he has to go out in disguise, otherwise, he's mobbed. How is it doing a movie compared to doing the TV show? You did four movies, I think, and in fact, Jonathan Trakes directed some of those. Yeah. What was that experience like? It's exactly the same because we shot the we shot the series on film. It wasn't video cameras, um, so basically you just have more time sitting around because they take longer to light because your face is going to be 50 feet wide on the screen as opposed to on the telly. So yeah, there's a lot more sitting around, but the process is exactly the same. Oh, I said process, didn't I? You said process, very American. Process. The process. Sorry. But you were able to also, for example, give an outing to, you know, one of the villains that was big in Next Generation, the Borg, for example. Yeah, and didn't Alice Krieg do an amazing job as the Borg She was great. Very menacing. Oh, you know, they auditioned some of the biggest A-list stars in America for that role because it wasn't on the page. She had hardly any lines, Um, but Alice came in and she did her magic and Jonathan said it was a no-brainer she had to play it and then I just thought she was exquisitely brilliant yeah no I, I agree I think she was fantastic and 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 very chilling yeah and, and no one has quite captured that since others have played the ball queen since of course I know and and uh, she's nothing like that she's the sweetest sweetest woman in the world <laughs> well that's acting I guess yeah. isn't it? that's good acting bad actress so as well as Star Trek, which is a large part of your life, oh, you did Voyager as well, of course, didn't yeah. you? You reprised uh, Leanna Troy in three episodes of Voyager, I think? Yes, I did. Um, I actually turned it down originally because um, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it again. But they said, before I could say no the second time they asked, they quickly said, and you'll be working with Dwight Schultz, who played Barkley. Reg Barkley. Yeah, exactly. So um, I went, oh, all right, because I loved working with Dwight. He's such a joy to work with. And so I, I, it turned into, I think, three episodes. And then they asked me to do the last episode of Enterprise. And then again, before I could say no, they said, and Jonathan's already agreed. So I went, oh, okay, I want to work with Maim Zadi again. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on Podcast Radio. Marina Sirtis there talking about Star Trek. My thanks to Marina and Vicky, and you can still catch their work on TV in the UK and around the world where their shows are on pretty much continuous repeat. 
This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford, and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared, and leaving us with, you actually look at it and you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that. So there's those two reasons. It's like, well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station around here. Let's give it a go, see what happens. It really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. Hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.